Can you guys believe we're in week five? So tomorrow when you go, or tonight when you go home tomorrow morning, you're going to be in week six. So we're halfway through. I know, my goodness is right, yeah. All right, welcome to Bible study. All right, <clears throat> so to open, let's um, just first think about what we have learned so far in part uh, two of Deuteronomy, okay? We have learned that God himself um, prescribes what is appropriate worship. We learned what worship is, that worship is a way of living. It is not just a moment of time on a Sunday morning where we do all the things, sing, pray, give offerings, and hear a sermon, and then revert to our normal for the rest of the week. Our whole lives, rather, are to be dedicated to the um, worship and service of God. And we understand that we were created by God to worship him. And since the fall, man's worship is distorted. Then the week after that, we learned how not to be ensnared by those who would lead us into the worship of other gods and how to avoid that. We learned um, how idolatry is an abomination to God and that the punishment for idolatry is severe. And last week, we learned about holiness. Tree taught us that God's holiness is what separates him from all other beings, from everything else in all his creation. It makes him separate and distinct. His holiness includes things like his perfection, his purity, his transcendence. And we don't share in that holiness. But we are also to be holy, to be separate, to be set apart, to be godly, to be like God in moral purity. And we know that God is the source of our holiness. We who belong to him reflect God's holiness in our world, just as Israel was separated out from among the other nations on earth and called to be holy, so also we are separated out and called to be holy. And we learned about positional holiness, which is who we are because of the work that um, the choice that God made in his sovereignty and the work that Jesus did. And because they were chosen, right? Israel was chosen. God redeemed them from the house of slavery, and he set his affection on them. They were his treasured possession, and they were positionally holy. But then he had needed to teach them how to live into that holiness, and that we called progressive holiness, living into the holiness, into the position that they were already in. And in God's law, he is teaching them and training them on how to live holy lives. Um, in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, he said, be holy as I am holy. And last week too, we learned about holy foods and holy tithes and holy years and holy celebrations. And today in our passage, we're going to study holy offices. And we have to know too that remember how the Old Testament is a blueprint for the things that are to come in the New Testament. So we're going to see that blueprint. It's going to roll out before you. <laughs> Four categories of leadership that we've studied this week. Judges, kings, priests, and prophets. And these four groups of leaders were established by God to help the people follow his law 
by giving a living example of what godly or holy living was to look like. Again, we've talked um, about how God needed to teach his people how to live as a distinct people, apart from the pagan nations that were around them, and he did to teach them how to trust him. So before we look at our text in Deuteronomy 16, let's pray. Father, we come tonight knowing that it is a privilege to study your word, and it's a privilege to study your word together. I pray that you would calm our hearts and decrease the distractions that we might have. Open our ears. Teach us, Lord, what we need to learn about you. I pray that you would calm my heart and mind and put your words in my mouth. Help me to be faithful to the text, Lord. And I pray, too, that you would change us through the study of your word. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to jump right into Deuteronomy 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 18, so you can follow along in your Bibles. Okay, the word says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, so throughout all the land of Israel, in each town, the people were to appoint judges and officers. So these would be like our modern-day justices and police officers, and they were to keep order within the individual communities. And we see that they were to judge the people with righteous judgment. Good, honest, fair, decisions, decrees, and verdicts. But what were they not to do? They were not to pervert justice. They were not to show partiality. And they were not to accept a bribe. Because doing these things would disrupt the true course of justice. Accepting a bribe would blind the eyes of the wise and subvert the cause of the righteous. And justice would therefore no longer be a right of all men, but would only serve those who were wealthy enough to manipulate it. And to act as ungodly as an ungodly judge would turn uh, would cause a turning away from justice, and that would be contrary to the character and purpose of God. In Deuteronomy 10:17, we read, "For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe." They were to be holy as God is holy. So instead, verse 20 tells us, justice and only justice you shall follow. Other translations say pursue justice. Justice is the principle underlying the law. It was not man-made or conceived, but it found its source and authority in God. Deuteronomy 10, 18 said that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. So this did reveal the character and purposes of God. But how would they have known what was just? 
How would they discern how to pursue justice? Well, they had the law of God. They would need to know the law of God. And the pursuit of justice and the execution of the law in justice could alone lead to life and possession of the promised land. You see that at the very end of verse 20. It says that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So it comes with a promise. So let's pick up with verse 21. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. And chapter 17, verse 1, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. I'm going to stop right there, even though in our text there is no actual break um, that we see there. But these three verses that I read are addressing forbidden forms of worship. And remember, God himself set forth the regulations for the worship of himself. And the first two were very similar. We have restrictions uh, regarding setting up an Asherah and then a pillar. Now, the Israelites had already been commanded, like back in chapter 7, to um, destroy the Asherah and tear down the pillars of the Canaanite cult centers of worship. Now here they are being instructed not to set them up next to his altar. So you might think, well, you know, what's an Asherah? Well, according to gotquestions.org, Asherah or Ashtaroth was the name of the chief female deity that was worshipped in ancient Canaan. She was represented by a limbless tree trunk planted in the ground. It could be made from any tree. The trunk was usually carved into a symbolic representation of the goddess. And Asherah was worshipped as the moon goddess. She was considered the consort of Baal, the sun god. She was known as the goddess of fertility, of love, and of war. And worship of Asherah was noted for its sensuality and involved ritual prostitution. The priests and priestesses of Asherah also practiced divination and fortune-telling. So we can see why God would prohibit his people to set up an Asherah or a pillar or pole next to his altar. It's setting up a false god next to the altar of the one true God of Israel, and that would be an abomination to him. God is serious about this. He alone is to be worshipped. Though the third restriction that we see in 17.1 is in regard to not bringing a blemished or a defective animal to the Lord God as a sacrifice. Only the best could be offered to God. To offer less than the best would be to mock God and to hold in low esteem his worship. God actually rebuked the priests for despising his name. In Malachi um, chapter 1, there, there's a paragraph where God is, is, is calling them out. And um, I'll pick up with um, this statement. God says to them, but you say, as he said, you have despised my name. And, and God says then, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? 
So God rebuked the priests for not following the commands that he had given that an animal be brought that had no blemish or defect. So why would these verses on forbidden forms of worship be right here in the midst of stipulations for judges and officers? Now, you have to remember that these offices were established by God, and, and um, he set apart these offices to lead the people in holy living. And engaging in these forbidden forms of worship would further widen the rift between God and his people, which was the exact opposite of what his worship was intended to do. It was meant to bring the people to God, not widen a rift between them. So it's appropriately placed. Um, let's move on. Picking up in chapter 17, verse 2, these instructions are for the judges and the officers. If there is found among you, within, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That is a heavy passage. Notice what the crime is here. We see it in verse 2. Transgressing God's covenant. It's a breach of the very first commandment that he gave them. You shall have no other gods before me. Israel was a theocracy. It was a nation with God as its king. God had established his covenant with his people whom he redeemed from the house of slavery. The very first command that he gave them was a prohibition of the worship of other gods. To allow for such idolatry would undermine the very basis on which the covenant community existed. It would threaten their security. This crime of worshiping other gods, the religious in form, is political in significance. In essence, it was treason. And treason is punishable by death, even in our world culture today. But what are these judges instructed to do when they hear of this crime or this charge of treason? Remember, they're pursuing justice. Well, verse 4 tells us they're to inquire diligently. They are to make an investigation into these charges and if the charges are founded, then the guilty persons are stoned to death. But God even gives specific instructions regarding that investigation and the verdict. The death penalty can only be exacted on the evidence of two or three witnesses. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of just one witness. This would protect the covenant community against putting an innocent party to death. It's not just one word against another word. The way in which the execution was to be carried out um, actually emphasizes the burden of responsibility for truthful testimony. The witness in the case against the accused accepted the onus of responsibility by being the first one to cast the first stone. 
On the other hand, they would also, in effect, assume responsibility for a wrongful death, which would be murder, which there is also a penalty for. Hence, truthful testimony is strongly encouraged and people were held accountable. But the scripture also tells us what is the purpose of taking such action against the sin of treason uh, against God's people. In verse 7, it says it was to purge the evil from their midst. So let's take a minute and think about um, whether this would have any bearing on us today. We obviously aren't hauling people out, idolaters and stoning them, right? But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is actually, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, is actually addressing the situation where there is open, blatant sin of sexual immorality that was taking place inside the church. And he's admonishing the believers there that it is indeed their responsibility to judge the fellow believer. They don't have a responsibility to judge unbelievers, those outside the church, only those inside the church, those who claim to be in Christ. When they are living in open, unrepentant sin, right? When the person is not willing to confess and turn from their sin, then that person is to be put out of the church. And Paul gives his reason in 1 Corinthians 5.13. He says, purge the evil from among you. Sounds an awful lot like purge the evil from your midst, doesn't it? And he actually gives his reasons why this is important earlier in that fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. He explains that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, sin spreads. Sin allowed to remain within the body weakens the community. Sin poisons the spiritual health of a congregation and also invites slander from the unbelieving world. So in this way, these guidelines law that God is setting up, he is protecting the purity of his covenant community both then and now. They are learning how to live into the holiness in which they are already positioned. All right, let's pick up in verse 8 in chapter 17. This is still um, instructions for the judges and the officers within the towns. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who was in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do all that they direct you. I'm going to stop there. So essentially, you know, in, in the individual towns, when the, when the um, judges and officers are hearing these cases, if something's too hard and they can't figure it out, they need to take it to the place that the Lord chose to put his name. So later we know that that place was Jerusalem, to the temple they would go. So they would go and the um, priests actually also served as judges. Uh, and it's kind of like Supreme Court. Right, you take it to the big, bigger government, and we're going to sit between before uh, the judges there and the priests there. And whatever decision was made, they were required to keep it. It says that you shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. 
and the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the verdict that they were given, that person should also uh, be put to death. And the reason at the end of this passage here, the end of 12 and verse 13, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Again, God is protecting the purity of his covenant community. All right, so that was the first holy office, judges. So now the second one that God established for his people was that of a king. And so we're going to pick up in Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to start in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. I'm going to stop there. Commentators call this section permissive legislation. In other words, it wasn't that God was saying that they would have to have a king, but the law is anticipating a time when Israel would want a king. And we do know, right, that they did later come and say, we want a king. So remember, as a theocracy, God was their king. He would always be their king. And when they did come and ask for a king, they wanted to be like all the nations around them where we've heard over and over again in this book of Deuteronomy that they weren't to be like the nations around them. But that's how they ended up. They wanted to have a human king. Israel rejected their king. But God had already laid down these guidelines, right? Israel may indeed ask for a king. But it needed to be a man chosen by God himself. And he would need to be an Israelite by birth, wouldn't be a foreigner. And he must not be given over to excessive wealth women, or warfare. So horses actually represents both wealth and warfare. Warfare because then they could have chariots, and that was, in that day, uh, would be a stronger army. And wealth, it was a sign of wealth. And, uh, and women, it says clearly that it would turn his heart away. So let's pick up in verse uh, 18 to see what God would require of the man um, that he would choose to be king. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So what is God going to require of this man? He must constantly study the law. He's going to have a, he himself had to handwrite a copy of the law. And he's going to keep it with him. And he's going to read it. And he's going to study it. And he's going to obey it. And hopefully he's going to fall in love with it. Right? And it's going to teach him how to fear God. 
And it's also going to teach him that he must remain humble, that he needs to remain aware of both his human status as a man among his brothers, but also of his status in relation to the kingship of God. Because he's representing both his brothers, right, man, but he's representing God as being the king of God's people. And he's going to help Israel keep the law by leading by example. The king would be set apart, in other words, he would be holy to the Lord to lead God's people in obedience to God's law so that he and the people would live long in the land that God was bringing them to. It's really a very beautiful picture. All right, the third holy office we're going to look at is that of the priests and Levites. Let's pick up in chapter 18, verse 1. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priests due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice. And it goes on and it explains of this, the, the offerings that the people are bringing, the, the meat, the grain, the wine, and the oil. These are the sacrifices that they're bringing and that the priests, the, Le the Levites, that would be their food offerings. That would be one of the ways that the people are supporting the Levites as they uh, work to minister before the Lord in the temple. So the end of that um, section here, it says, For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons, for all time. So interestingly, all priests were Levites, but not every Levite was a priest. The Levitical priests bore the responsibility of offering the sacrifices required by the Mosaic law. These priests also served as judges, like we talked about in an earlier passage. The Levites, who were not priests, were given various duties in the caretaking of the tabernacle and later um, the temple and its furnishings. So that's an interesting uh, fact. But the statutes in this section remind the people that regardless of what their responsibility was, as far as the priests or the Levites, um, it was the people's responsibility to support the Levites as they performed the duties that were assigned to them by God. The people were not to neglect the Levites. Even the Levites that came from the cities that they resided in to the place that the Lord chose to put his name, whereas later we know that it was Jerusalem, who came for a time to serve in the temple. So that would even be like Zechariah from, uh, from Luke chapter 1, you know, the father of John the Baptist. It, the scripture tells us that he came for a time to do his, his diligence, his, his round, so to speak. Uh, he was there for a time, and when he was finished performing his priestly duties, he went back home to Elizabeth. So this is what this is talking about here. So even priests that came for a short time, they still were to be provided for during that short time of performing their duty in the temple. The priests and the Levites, in their work of the tabernacle, making the sacrifices the people brought day after day, right, for the forgiveness of sins, would also be leading the people by example to help them keep the law and stay close to their God. And the people were to support them in their work. 
All right, interesting section next with the pickup in verse nine. This is about abominable practices. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. All right, chapter 18 opened with instructions regarding the covenant community's responsibility to the Levitical priests who were tasked with religious functions and practices. But here in this section, we are seeing a list of illegitimate types of religious functions and practices that would have been carried out by the pagan priests. So God is making a distinction here. You're going to be different. You're going to be different. So God, through Moses, has been telling the people how important it was for them to take great care not to copy um, their, the people that are in the land. Uh, in the matter of worship and other religious practices. They were not to adopt pagan ways of worship in any way. And in essence, this is a comprehensive list of the types of religious and magic functionaries who were to be forbidden in Israel. We see a blanket prohibition of all types of divination, magic, and consultation with the spirit world, as such would be typical of Canaanite religions. We don't ever see any of that around our day, do we? Or do we? We need to be careful. The inclusion of child sacrifice here in this context, it's in this context, isn't just simply child sacrifice, which is, of course, also prohibited and an abomination to God. But here the child is sacrificed with a particular purpose of determining or discerning the course of events as these other abominable practices are all known for. So those who practice such things are indeed trying to determine future events or to influence events by supernatural methods. It's horrible. These foreign offices and practices, which were an abomination to the Lord, were forbidden in Israel precisely because they were part of the reason for God bringing judgment on the Canaanites. Their ways were wicked. If the Israelites adopted these practices, they too would become liable to ejection from the land. To maintain possession of the land, they were to be blameless before the Lord, to be holy as he is holy. Having forbidden certain illegitimate methods of attempted communication with the supernatural world, Moses then turns now to prophecy the only true and legitimate means by which God's word would be communicated to the people. So the fourth holy office that we're going to look at is that of prophet. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. 
It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God to see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. All right, this legislation actually has two levels of significance. The first is the provision for um, continued leadership after the death of Moses. You remember, Moses is going to die. He is not going to go over into the promised land, and they're going to need a leader. And God did appoint Joshua to lead them into the land, and they are to listen to him. But secondly, the passage is prophetic. And the primary sense in which the coming prophets, the, the men that came after Moses, that they would resemble him, would be in their function, and that would be to declare the word of the Lord. And Moses says that God would raise up another prophet like him, just as they had desired. Do you recall back in chapter 5 when God spoke the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Horeb? How the dark cloud descended and there were thunders and lightnings and the people were terrified. And they were like, no, no, please don't let him speak to us any more directly again because we might die. They were scared. And they said, Moses, you go. You go and you hear what he has to say and come back and tell us. And whatever you tell us, we'll listen and we'll do. They asked for a mediator. That's what they had asked for. And this prophet that God is going to divinely appoint would speak directly God's word. So the Israelites whether it was the ultimate prophet or all the prophets in between, the Israelites would have a way of knowing and understanding the course of how things were going. Um, it was a totally different manner of determining future events from how the pagans uh, were trying to determine future events. And they were not to ignore the word of, that was spoken by the prophet or God would personally hold that person responsible. But in light of the serious nature of failing to obey the prophetic word, Moses then turns to the matter of how to distinguish between true and false prophecies. So I'm just going to read verses 20 and 21 here. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? So how to determine whether, a false, whether it's a false prophet or a true prophet? We did study this about two weeks ago in a little more in depth. The most obvious way, um, according to our text, is actually that if the prophet spoke in the name of other gods, right? Well, that was a breach of the very first commandment. So we know mm, false prophet. So that's an easy one. The more difficult case would be if the prophet spoke words that he claimed were from God. Well, maybe the words that he spoke weren't to come true for a long time. And this happened. Like the prophet Jeremiah had told the people, when you get carried off into Babylon, you're going to be there for 70 years. Well, they had to wait 70 years to find out if he was telling the truth. Right? So it might, determining whether a prophet was a true prophet or a false prophet 
might take place over the whole lifetime of a prophet's ministry. But there was another sure way of knowing whether he was a true or a false prophet, and that would be whether the word that he spoke was in line with what God had previously spoken, or was it against what God had previously spoken. For instance, saying that I spoke in the name of another God, that was completely against what God had, had told them. So false prophet, that is the way they would know. And the penalty for that was death. And they were purging the evil from their midst and protecting, again, protecting the purity of the covenant community. Okay, so those are the four holy offices. We have judges that were to settle disputes among the people. They were to be well-versed in the law, but if a matter was too difficult for them, they would take it to the priests in the temple. And then the people may ask for a king, chosen by God, had to come from Israel and not be given over to excessive wealth, women, or warfare, must constantly study the law, fear God, and help Israel lead Israel in obedience to the law. Priests from the tribe of Levi who will work the tabernacle and won't have a land um, to call their own, right? they weren't having a land inheritance given to them, God would be their inheritance, um, and, but they must be supported by the offerings that were brought by the rest of Israel. And prophets speak the words that God gives them directly. If they say anything that doesn't come to pass or that it was false, then they were not a false, or they were not a true prophet. So these leaders were primarily there to help the people keep the law. They were to be an example of holy living. Remember, they were positionally holy, but they needed to learn how to live into the position that they that they had already. God had redeemed them from the house of slavery. He was their, they were his treasure possession. And in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, God said to the people, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So all these things that God had set apart, the holy foods, the holy tithes, the holy year, the holy celebrations, and the holy offices were intended to teach the people how to live into the positional holiness that they already were in. He was making them progressively holy. However, the rest of the Old Testament shows judges failing miserably, kings worshiping idols, priests forgetting the law, and prophets giving unchallenged false reports. Well, this just will not do. Because God requires holiness because of his own innate holiness. Hebrews tells us that without holiness, no one will see him. But God had a plan. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, there was Jesus. Jesus actually succeeds in all four of these categories. He is our perfect judge. He takes no bribes, shows no partiality, always maintains justice. His decisions are always perfect. And he is the only judge who justifies by taking the penalty on himself. He is our perfect priest. Whereas Israel's priests were supported by the offerings brought by the people, 
Jesus provided his own sacrifice. He offered up his very self to provide once for all forgiveness for everyone who believes on him. Jesus is our perfect prophet. He is not only perfectly spoke God's words to us, but he is God's perfect word in human flesh. In John chapter 1, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Ladies, we cannot separate Jesus from scripture. We cannot do it. He is the word made flesh. And Jesus is our perfect king. He not only kept the law perfectly, but he fulfilled the law perfectly. And he does not sit on a throne enforcing the law on his own people, but he left his throne. He left the riches of heaven to become poor, to have the law's penalty enforced on himself. And then like a good king, he leads us to follow his law as citizens of his kingdom. And he did this all for his bride, the church. Now, God said that he was going to raise up a prophet like Moses. But how is Jesus like Moses? Well, Moses was instrumental in founding the first kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And though he was followed by many genuine prophets, none were as significant in work as Moses was. Jesus also marked the coming of a new kingdom. It wasn't a political kingdom of this world, but it was the kingdom of God. And Moses mediated the covenant, which was to be the constitution of the kingdom of Israel, whose true king was God. The covenant required the shedding of blood for forgiveness of sins, but it was incomplete as it needed to be done over and over and over again. But Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He instituted this new covenant by his own blood. And because he was the perfect sacrifice, being truly God and truly man, it is complete. And in this way, Jesus is better than Moses. You know, since the fall of man, the only way to be made right with God has been the, through the blood of an innocent sacrifice. And Jesus was the final perfect sacrifice that satisfied forever God's wrath against sin. His divine nature made him fit for the work of Redeemer, and his human body allowed him to shed the blood necessary to redeem. No human being with a sin nature could pay such a debt. No one else could meet the requirements to become the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. If Jesus had merely been a good man, as some claim, then he would have had a sin nature, and he was not perfect. In that case, his death and resurrection would have had no power to save us. But because Jesus was God in the flesh, he alone could pay the debt that we owed to God. His victory over death and the grave won the victory for everyone who puts their trust in him. And I want to conclude by reading a passage from Revelation chapter 19. And as I read, I want you to listen for the descriptors of those four holy offices that we studied in Deuteronomy in this description of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus, the one for, who, for whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would impress on our hearts in such a deep, deep way how the things that we study in the Old Testament that seem so far away from us at times are really pointing to you. Help us to understand how Jesus is our prophet and our priest and our judge and our king. And I pray that you would help us to understand that we, as your people, followers of Jesus, that we too must walk in holiness and live into the holiness to which you have already placed us. Lord, change our hearts from within. Transform our lives. through your word, and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.